Chapter 5, Part 2 of The Sea Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1 by Frederick Wimper. Chapter 5 Perils of the Sailor's Life Continued. Part 2 It is, and always has been, a point of honor for the officers to be among the very last to leave, except, of course, where their presence might be needed in the boats, and the captain to be the very last. Here the captain was among the first to scramble over the side and his twelve-oared barge only took off twenty-eight persons when it would have easily carried many more. A large barge took the colonial governor and his family, and the governor's trunks. His boat wanted for nothing, and would have accommodated ten or more persons than it took. When several of the unfortunate crew swam off and begged to be taken in, they were kept off with drawn swords. The raft took the larger part of the soldiers— and had in all on board one hundred and fifty persons. The captain coolly proposed to desert some sixty of the people still on board, and leave them to shift for themselves. But an officer who threatened to shoot him was the means of making him change his mind, and over forty were taken off in the longboat. Seventeen men, many of whom were helplessly intoxicated, were, however, left to their fate. On the morning of the 5th of July the signal was given to put to sea, and at first some of the boats towed the raft, which had no one to command it but a midshipman named Coudin, who, having a painful wound on his leg, was utterly useless. The other officers consulted their own personal safety only, and with a few exceptions this was the case with everyone else. When the lieutenant of the longboat fearing that he could not keep the sea with eighty-eight men on board and no oars, entreated three of the other boats, one after the other, to relieve him of a part of his living cargo, they refused utterly. And the officer of the third, in his hurry to run away, loosed from the raft. This was the signal for a general desertion. The word was passed from one boat to another to leave them to their fate, and the captain had not the manliness to protest. The purser of the Medusa, with a few others, opposed such a dastardly proceeding, but in vain, and the raft without means of propulsion was abandoned. As it proved afterwards, the boats, which all reached the land safely, sighted the coast the same evening, and the raft could have been towed to it in a day or two, or at all events sufficiently near for the purpose. The people on it could not at first believe in this treacherous desertion, and once and again buoyed themselves up with the hope that the boats would return or send relief. The lieutenant on the longboat seems to have been one of the few officers possessing any spark of humanity and manliness. He kept his own boat near the raft for a time in the hope that the others might be induced to return, but at length had to yield to the clamor of some eighty men on board with him, who insisted on his proceeding in search of land. The consternation and despair of those on the raft beggars description. 
the water was even while the sea was calm up to the knees of the larger part on board while the horrors of a slow death from starvation and thirst and the prospect of being washed off by the waves should a storm arise stared them in the face several barrels of flour had been placed on the raft at first along with six barrels of wine and two small casks of water when only fifty persons had got on it their weight sunk it so low in the water that the flour was thrown into the sea and lost when the raft quitted the ship with a hundred and fifty souls on her she was a foot to a foot and a half under water and the only food on board was a twenty-five pound bag of biscuit in a semi-pulpy condition which just afforded them one meagre ration some on board to keep up the courage of the remainder promulgated the idea that the boats had merely made sail for the island of argan and that having landed their crews they would return this for the moment appeased the indignation of the soldiers and others who had with frantic gesticulations been wringing their hands and tearing their hair night came on and the wind freshened the waves rolling over them and throwing many down with violence the cries of the people were mingled with the roar of the waves whilst heavy seas constantly lifted them off their legs and threatened to wash them away thus clinging desperately to the ropes they struggled with death the whole night through about seven the next morning the sea was again calm when they found that twelve or more unfortunate men had during the night slipped between the interstices of the raft and perished the effects of starvation were beginning to tell upon them all their faculties were strangely impaired some fancied that they saw lighted signals in the distance and answered them by firing off their pistols or by setting fire to small heaps of gunpowder others thought they saw ships or land when there was nothing in sight the next day strong symptoms of mutiny broke out the officers being utterly disregarded by the soldiers the evening again brought bad weather the people were now dashed about by the fury of the waves there was no safety but in the centre of the raft where they packed themselves so close that many were nearly suffocated the soldiers and sailors now considering their destruction inevitable resolved to drown the sense of their situation by drinking till they should lose their reason nor could they be persuaded to forego their mad scheme they rushed upon a cask of wine which was near the centre and making a hole in it drank so much that the fumes soon mounted to their heads in the empty condition in which they were and they then resolved to rid themselves of their officers and afterwards to destroy the raft by cutting the lashings which kept it together one of them commenced hacking away at the ropes with a boarding hatchet the civil and military officers rushed on this ringleader and though he made a desperate resistance soon dispatched him the people on the raft were now divided into two antagonistic parties about twenty civil officers and the better class of passengers on one side and a hundred or more soldiers and workmen on the other the mutineers says the narrative drew their swords and were going to make a general attack when the fall of another of their number struck such a seasonable terror into them that they retreated but it was only to make another attempt at cutting the ropes 
one of them pretending to rest on the side rail of the raft began to work when he was discovered and a few moments afterwards with a soldier who attempted to defend him was sent to his last account this was followed by a general fight an infantry captain was thrown into the sea by the soldiers but rescued by his friends he was then seized a second time and the revolters attempted to put out his eyes a charge was made upon them and many put to death the wretches threw overboard the only woman on the raft together with her husband they were however saved only to die miserably soon afterwards a second repulse brought many of the mutineers to their senses and temporarily awed the rest some asking pardon on their knees but at midnight the revolt again broke out the soldiers attacking the party in the centre of the raft with the fury of madmen even biting their adversaries they seized upon one of the lieutenants mistaking him for one of the ship's officers who had deserted the raft and he was rescued and protected afterwards with the greatest difficulty they threw overboard monsieur coudin an elderly man who was covered with wounds received in opposing them and a young boy of the party in whom he took an interest monsieur coudin had the presence of mind both to support the child and to take hold of the raft and his friends kept off the brutal soldiery with drawn swords until they were lifted on board again the combat was so fierce and the weather at night so bad that on the return of day it was found that over sixty had perished off the raft it is stated that the mutineers had thrown over the remaining water and two casks of wine the indications in the narrative would not point to the latter conclusion as the soldiers and workmen were constantly intoxicated and many no doubt were washed off by the waves in that condition a powerful temperance tract might be written on the loss of the medusa on the morning of the fourth day after their departure from the frigate the dead bodies of twelve of the company who had expired during the night were lying on the raft this day a shoal of flying fish played round the raft and a number of them got on board and were entangled in the spaces between the timbers a small fire lighted with flint and steel and gunpowder was made inside a barrel and the fish half cooked was greedily devoured they did not stop here the account briefly indicates that they ate parts of the flesh of their dead companions horror followed horror a massacre succeeded their savage feast some spaniards italians and negroes among them who had hitherto taken no part with the mutineers now formed a plot to throw their superiors into the sea a bag of money which had been collected as a common fund and was hanging from a rude mast hastily extemporized probably tempted them the officers party threw their ringleader overboard while another of the conspirators finding his villainy discovered weighted himself with a heavy boarding axe and rushing to the forepart of the raft plunged headlong into the sea and was drowned a desperate combat ensued and the fatal raft was quickly piled with dead bodies on the fifth morning there were only thirty alive the remnant suffered severely and one-third of the number were unable to stand up or move about the salt water and intense heat of the sun blistered their feet and legs 
and gave intense pain. In the course of the seventh day, two soldiers were discovered stealing the wine, and they were immediately pushed overboard. This day also, Léon, the poor little boy mentioned before, died from sheer starvation. The story has been so far nothing but a record of insubordination, murderous brutality, and utter selfishness. But the worst has yet to come. Let the survivors tell their own shameful and horrible story. There were now but twenty-seven left, and of these, twelve, amongst them the woman, were so ill that there was no hope of their surviving even a few days. They were covered with wounds, and had almost entirely lost their reason. They might have lived long enough to reduce our stock to a very low ebb, but there was no hope that they could last more than a few days. To put them on short allowance was only hastening their death, while giving them a full ration was uselessly diminishing a quantity already too low. After an anxious consultation we came to the resolution of throwing them into the sea, and thus terminating at once their sufferings. This was a horrible and unjustifiable expedient, but who amongst us would have the cruelty to put it into execution? Three sailors and a soldier took it on themselves. We turned away our eyes from the shocking sight, trusting that, in thus endeavouring to prolong our own lives, we were shortening theirs but a few hours. This gave us the means of subsistence for six additional days. After this dreadful sacrifice, we cast our swords into the sea, reserving but one sabre for cutting wood or cordage as might be necessary. Was there ever such an example of demoniacal hypocrisy mingled with pretended humanity? One can hardly interest himself in the fate of the remaining fifteen, who, if they were not all human devils, must have carried to their dying days the brand of Cain indelibly impressed on their memories. A few days passed, and the indications of a close approach to land became frequent. Meantime, they were suffering from the intense heat and from excessive thirst. One more example of petty selfishness was afforded by an officer who had found a lemon which he resolved to keep entirely for himself until the ominous threats of the rest obliged him to share it. The wine, which should have warmed their bodies and gladdened their hearts, produced on their weakened frames the worst effects of intoxication. Five of the number resolved and were barely persuaded not to commit suicide, so maddened were they by their potations. Perhaps the sight of the sharks, which now came boldly up to the edges of the raft, had something to do with sobering them, for they decided to live. Three days now passed in intolerable torments. They had become so careless of life that they bathed even in sight of the sharks. Others were not afraid to place themselves naked upon the forepart of the raft, which was then entirely under water, and though it was exceedingly dangerous, it had the effect of taking away their thirst. They now attempted to construct a boat of planks and spars. When completed, a sailor went upon it, when it immediately upset, and the design of reaching land by this means was abandoned. On the morning of the 17th of July, the sun shone brightly and the sky was cloudless. 
just as they were receiving their ration of wine, one of the infantry officers discerned the topmasts of a vessel near the horizon. Uniting their efforts, they raised a man to the top of the mast, who waved constantly a number of handkerchiefs tied together. After two hours of painful suspense, the vessel, a brig, disappeared, and they once more resigned themselves to despair. Deciding that they must leave some record of their fate, they agreed to carve their names with some account of their disaster on a plank, in the hope that it might eventually reach their government and families. But they were to be saved. The brig reappeared and bore down for them. She proved to be a vessel which had been dispatched by the governor of Senegal for the purpose of rescuing any survivors. Though considering the raft had now been seventeen days afloat, there was little expectation that any of its hundred and fifty passengers still lived. The wounded and blistered limbs, sunken eyes, and emaciated frames of the remnant told its own tale on board. And yet, with due order and discipline, presence of mind and united helpfulness, the ship with every soul who had sailed on her might have been saved, and a fearful story of cruelty, murder, and cannibalism spared to us. The modern Medusa has been branded with a name of infamy worse than that of the famous classical monster after which she was named. The celebrated picture by Géricault in the Louvre at Paris vividly depicts the horrors of the scene. The wreck of the Medusa has very commonly been compared and contrasted with that of the Alceste, an English frigate which was wrecked the same year. Lord Amherst was returning from China in this vessel, after fulfilling his mission to the court of Peking, instituted at the instance of the East India Company, who had complained to government of the impediments thrown in the way of their trade by the Chinese. His secretary and suite were with him, and so there was some resemblance to the case of the Medusa, which had a colonial governor and his staff on board. The commander of the Alceste was Captain, afterwards Sir Murray Maxwell, a true gentleman and a bluff, hearty sailor. Having touched at Manila, they were passing through the Straits of Gaspar, when the ship suddenly struck on a reef of sunken rocks, and it became evident that she must inevitably and speedily break up. The most perfect discipline prevailed, and the first efforts of the captain were naturally directed to saving the ambassador and his subordinates. The island of Palo Late was a few miles off, and although its coast at this part was a salt marsh with mangrove trees growing out in the water so thick and entangled that it almost prevented them landing, every soul was got off safely. Good feeling and sensible counsels prevailed. At first there was no fresh water to be obtained. It was water, water everywhere, yet not a drop to drink. In a short time, however, they dug a deep well, and soon reached plenty. Then the Malays attacked, and surrounded them. At first a few score, at last six or seven hundred strong. Things looked black, but they erected a stockade, made rude pikes by sticking their knives, dirks, and small swords on the end of poles, and although they had landed with just seventy-five ball cartridges, their stock soon grew to fifteen hundred. How? Why, the sailors set to with a will, 
and made their own, the balls being represented by their jacket buttons and pieces of the glass of broken bottles. Of loose powder they had, fortunately, a sufficient quantity. The Malays set the wreck on fire, the men waited till it had burned low, and then drove them off, and went and secured such of the stores as could now be reached, or which had floated off. The natives were gathering thick. Murray made his sailors a speech, in true, hearty style, and their wild huzzas were taken by the Malays for war-whoops, the latter soon weakened, as they say in America. From the highest officer to the merest boy, all behaved like calm, resolute, and sensible Britons, and every soul was saved. Lord Amherst, who had gone on to Batavia, sent a vessel for them, on board which Maxwell was the last to embark. At the time of the wreck their condition was infinitely worse than that of the Medusa, but how completely different the sequel! The story is really a pleasant one, displaying, as it does, the happy results of both good discipline and mutual good feeling in the midst of danger. Nil desperandum was evidently the motto of that crew, and their philosophy was rewarded. The lessons of the past and present in regard to our great ships have taught us that disaster is not confined to ironclads, nor victory to wooden walls. Neither is good discipline dead, nor the race of true-hearted tars extinct. Men of iron will soon be the worthy successors of hearts of oak. Having glanced at the causes which led to the ironclad movement, and noted certain salient points in its history, let us now for a while discuss the ironclad herself. It has been remarked as a matter of reproach to the administrators and builders of the British ironclad navy that the vessels composing it are not sufficiently uniform in design, power, and speed. Mr. Reed, however, tells us that La Marine Moderne Cuirassée of France is still more distinguished by the different types and forms of the vessels, and that ours, by comparison, wears quite a tiresome appearance of sameness, while again Russia has ironclads even more diversified than those of France. The objection is perhaps hardly a fair one, as the exigencies of the navy are many and varied. We might have to fight a first-class power, or several first-class powers, where all our strength would have to be put forth. Some second-class power might require chastising, where vessels of a secondary class might suffice, while almost any vessel of the navy would be efficient in the case of wars with native tribes, as, for example, the Maoris of New Zealand, or the Indians of the coasts of northwest America. In a great naval conflict, provided the vessels of our fleet steamed pretty evenly as regards speed, there would be an advantage in variety, for it might rather puzzle and worry the enemy who would not know what next would appear, or what new form turn up. Mr. Reed puts the matter in a nutshell. Although it must be seen that among first-class powers with first-class fleets, the argument cuts both ways. In the old days, says he, when actions had to be fought under sail, and when ships of a class were in the main alike, the limits within which the arts, the resources, and the audacities of the navy were restricted were really very narrow, and yet how brilliant were its achievements. 
i cannot but believe that if the english ironclad fleet were now to be engaged in a general action with an enemy's fleet the very variety of our ships those very improvements which have occasioned that variety would be at once the cause of the greatest possible embarrassment to the enemy and the means of the most vigorous and diversified attack upon the hostile fleet this is peculiarly true of all those varieties which result from increase in handiness in bow fire in height of port and so forth and unless i have misread our naval history and misappreciate the character of our naval officers of the present day the nation will in the day of trial obtain the full benefit of these advantages it needs no argument to convince the reader that the aim of a naval architect should be to combine in the best manner available strength and lightness the dimensions and outside form of the ship in great part determine her displacement and her capacity to carry weights depends largely on the actual weight of her own hull while the room within partly depends on the thinness or thickness of her walls now we have seen that in wooden ships the hull weighs more than in iron ships of equal size and it will be apparent that what is gained in the latter case can be applied to carrying so much the more iron armor hence distinguished authorities do not believe in the wood-built ship carrying heavy armor nearly so much as in the iron-clad iron-built ship the durability and strength are greater the authority of such a man as mr j scott russell the eminent shipbuilder will be conclusive in a pamphlet published in eighteen sixty two he noted the following ten points one that iron steam ships of war may be built as strong as wooden ships of greater weight and stronger than wooden ships of equal weight two that iron ships of equal strength can go on less draught of water than wooden ships three that iron ships can carry much heavier weights than wooden ships hence they can carry heavier armor four that they are more durable five six seven eight nine that they are safer against the sea against fire explosive shots red-hot shots molten metal and ten that they can be made impregnable even against solid shot the last point alas is one which mr scott russell himself would hardly insist upon to-day when he wrote his pamphlet five or six inches of armor with a wood backing withstood anything that could be fired against it when the armor of the warrior our first real ironclad had to be tested a target twenty feet by ten feet surface composed of four and a half inch iron and eighteen inches of teak backing the exact counterpart of a slice out of the ship's side was employed the shot from sixty-eight pounders the same as composed her original armament fired at two hundred yards only made small dents in the target and rebounded two hundred pounders had no more effect the shot flew off in ragged splinters the iron plates became almost red-hot under the tremendous strokes and rung like a huge gong but that was all now we have six and a half ton guns that would pierce her side at five hundred yards twelve ton guns that would put a hole through her armor at over a mile and twenty-five ton guns 
that would probably penetrate the armor of any ironclad whatever. Why, some of the ships themselves are now carrying 30-ton guns. It is needless to go on and speak of monster 81- and 100-ton guns after recording these facts. But their consideration explains why the thickness of armor has kept on increasing, albeit it could not possibly do so in an equal ratio. Mr. Reed tells us, This strange contest between attack and defense, however wasteful, however melancholy, must still go on. Sir W. G. Armstrong, inventor of the famous guns, on the other hand, says, In my opinion, armor should be wholly abandoned for the defense of the guns, and except to a very limited extent, I doubt the expediency of using it even for the security of the ship. Where armor can be applied for deflecting projectiles, as at the bow of a ship, it would afford great protection, without requiring to be very heavy. Sir William recommends very swift iron vessels, divided into numerous compartments, with boilers and machinery below the waterline, and only very partially protected by armor. Considering that victory in the contest as regards strength is entirely on the side of the artillery. Sir Joseph Whitworth, also an inventor of great guns, offered practically to make guns to penetrate any thickness of armor. The bewildered parliamentary committee says mournfully in its report, A perfect ship of war is a desideratum which has never yet been attained, and is now farther than ever removed from our reach. While Mr. Reed again cuts the Gordian knot by professing his belief that, in the end, guns will themselves be superseded as a means of attack, and the ship itself, viewed as a steam projectile, possessing all the force of the most powerful shot, combined with the power of striking in various directions, will be deemed the most formidable weapon of attack that man's ingenuity has devised. The contest between professed ship and gun-makers would be amusing, but for the serious side, the immense expense, and the important interests involved. End of chapter 5, part 2